0: now spreading freedom across the nation this is the buck sexton show You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the bug brief. We're joined now by Hassan Hassan. He is the co-author of the 2015 New York Times bestseller ISIS: Inside the Army of Terror. He's also a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Uh, Hassan, thank you for calling.
1: Thank you for having me back on.
0: Uh, so tell us, the, the latest I'm seeing here is that the Aleppo evacuation is is not just underway, but is nearing completion. Uh, what is the, give us just sort of a status update on, on Aleppo, both from the humanitarian and then from the uh, military side.
1: Well, so the evacuation from Aleppo, which, uh, or the eastern parts of Aleppo, this is an area that uh, the Syrian rebels controlled uh, since, June 2012. So they for, for nearly five years, uh, they had been in control of this uh, very important area, very symbolic uh, part of Aleppo. And uh, recently, with the support of the Russians and uh, Iranian-backed militias, uh, the Assad regime finally uh, managed to expel the Syrian opposition from there and finally forced them to uh, evacuate or agree to uh, an evacuation plan, and uh, that evacuation p- evacuation plan has been um, has been uh, you know has had some uh, setbacks, but uh, it's in like you said uh, in its final stages.
0: Now you wrote a piece in the Guardian, uh, Aleppo Elegy for a doomed city whose history spans centuries. Um, and when you, you talk a bit about your time in the city, uh, pretty close to the the outbreak of of the civil war that's been grinding on, grinding on now for for years, if you could just sort of speak to the importance of Aleppo uh, both for the the rebels, the anti-Assad resistance, but also just in the history of Syria a little bit, so people get a sense of why this is such a uh, not just a humanitarian catastrophe, but a, but a psychological blow as well.
1: Absolutely. So in uh, in the article uh, that I wrote, um, I I wanted to kind of go beyond the Syrian conflict uh, because I think, you know, many people start looking at the Aleppo fall and what it means to Syrian rebels and whether this is the end of the Syrian rebellion or the beginning of the end and so on and so forth. But uh, but the fall of Aleppo, the destruction uh, of the city. Uh, has had also a deep psychological, profound psychological uh, impact throughout the region. People, uh, when they saw that uh, these militias coming from outside and uh, there's a superpower also helping uh, the Assad regime destroy the city, they started to invoke uh, history. And uh, it was easy to uh, draw historical parallels, for example, between Aleppo and Mosul, these two cities historically uh, were linked uh, in, in the minds of people. These uh, were controlled by a famous dynasty that uh, uh, laid the, uh, the groundwork for Salah al-Din to uh, conquer Jerusalem and, uh, and expel the crusaders and so on and so forth. So when they, when they see that Aleppo, a uh, Sunni, predominantly Sunni area, being destroyed, and then they see also Mosul being attacked, there are different conflicts. Obviously, there's a medieval... Uh, group uh, ruling um Mosul since 2014 and the Americans are helping uh, through a carefully planned uh, or relatively let's say uh, plan to uh, expel and drive out uh, drive out uh, ISIS uh, from Mosul but people see different things they see that there are two two superpowers uh, helping in two conflicts against um uh, areas that historically were uh, you know seen as uh, seats of uh, Sunni uh, hegemony in the Middle East. And now these superpowers are enabling, in both cases, the hegemony of Iran in the region. So uh, it's, it's really profound. And I, I think I wanted to kind of highlight this uh, the, the depth of the psychological wound that people throughout the region feel. And also to highlight how what's happening today in Aleppo and in Mosul. Although I have to emphasize that Mosul is a different conflict and different situation. But uh, I'm speaking from the perception of people uh, in the region. Uh, What's happened in these two towns will have uh, repercussions for many years uh, to come. People will feel that uh, there is a a different geopolitical uh, order that's been uh, put in place and enabled by two superpowers even though they're not working together, but they're working towards something, uh, one outcome uh, that's taking place. And I, uh, you know, Aleppo historically was uh, more important than Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria, but uh, Aleppo was always more important historically, not not because it it was an important commercial hub uh, for the region stretching from uh, Syria to uh, Iraq, uh, what's now Syria and, uh, and Iraq, but also because um you know it was ruled by important symbolic uh, symbolic d- dynasties uh that had an impact uh throughout, throughout the islamic history and uh it also has uh, you know the, the areas that were destroyed in Aleppo uh included uh you know mosques uh, mosques uh, historic mosques ancient mosques uh built by uh revert people uh like uh, nord jin zinki who ruled uh, the area from, Ale- uh, from Mosul to Aleppo uh, to Damascus all the way to uh, Egypt. Um, so people saw the conflict in different ways, and I wanted to highlight
0: that aspect. Well, there's also the aspect that you highlight in your piece, which you uh, co-wrote, I believe, here, yes, with, uh, with Michael Weiss, and we also know well on the show, that the fall of sure. Aleppo is a huge gift to the Islamic State. I want you to try to walk us through that argument. Explain why that is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in um, in May uh, this year, uh, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, that's the you know the former spokesperson of ISIS, uh, who's well known for calling on attacks against the West and so on and so forth, Um, and and for you know uh, just just because it happened uh, you know yesterday the kind of the use of trucks uh, uh, last year to to attack civilians and so on and so forth. So this uh, person came out in May to highlight a growing criticism in the Middle East against ISIS, which is that um, ISIS only brings devastation and destruction to Sunni areas. Uh, so they say, look, ISIS is not actually uh, helping us in any way. They control an area, Iranian-backed militias come to this area, destroy it, and then take it. So at the end, only, uh, like Sunnis are only losing uh, and their towns are being destroyed and and he came out uh, and he felt compelled to come out and say uh, look uh, there there's no precedent in islamic history uh, that makes us think that we can withdraw from an area only because it's going to be destroyed and there's no precedent that uh, we can do that to make sure that people in these towns uh, continue to support us and they, uh, he he says uh, so basically that, that he he felt compelled to do it uh, two months, uh, sorry, a few months later, when Aleppo is being destroyed. So remember, ISIS doesn't exist in Aleppo. ISIS doesn't control any area inside Aleppo. And yet, Aleppo has been destroyed in the same way that uh, other areas like the Crete and Romadi and so on and so forth were destroyed. So people started to question their criticism mm-hmm. towards ISIS. That, you know, Sunni areas have been destroyed. It doesn't matter with or without isis and then uh isis came and retook and recaptured palmyra uh last week uh and that was uh, that was a way for isis to really come back again after a series of losses and and, and kind of a, a criticism mounting against isis because it only brought destruction and people say you know what it doesn't matter it seems it seems it doesn't matter whether ISIS is in control of a town or not. There is something happening in both Iraq and Syria, and we are under attack. Remember, Sunnis throughout his, history, they were the dominant, they are the majority. Uh, in, Islam, in Islam, they are probably uh, 80 to uh, 85% of uh, Muslims, uh, you know, uh, across the world. So, uh, and in the region, they are they a are majority. So they suddenly felt uh, they have this minority complex, that they feel under attack, there are no countries that uh, stand up uh, to defend them stand by them. Uh, and there's Iran, uh, you know, active in the region and supporting uh, uh, and destroying, uh, supporting uh, their opponents and destroying uh, their countries. So uh, uh, also me, uh, you know, I and Michael wanted to highlight uh, the resurgence of ISIS uh, as a, as a group that is still relevant and is still bene- and can benefit from this. So I think the, destroy of, the destruction of Aleppo was a gift uh, to ISIS. For
0: sure. What do you think the incoming administration should do about this enormous mess that is Syria and and the spillover into the region and Iraq and elsewhere, and the effect it's had on Turkey, the massive dislocations of of Syrians inside the country, and of course the refugee crisis that it's caused outside the country. Uh, half a million people are dead. You've got whole cities that are being turned to rubble. The incoming administration should do what? I mean, it would seem to be almost impossible. To do worse on this policy than the current administration has over its years, uh, what should the new administration do? What should the approach be
1: exactly I think that's a, that's a good point because uh, you know what I, I am a bit hopeful that the next administration would be uh, better, not because the you know the current administration has done so badly that nobody can uh, do worse than that, but also because I think the current uh, the next administration, from what I can see. From the, some of the appointments and uh, some of the nominations uh, that we have heard so far, about uh, they understand this uh, challenge uh, uh, that Iran poses in the region. So if they want to work with Russia. That's fine. Many Syrians want to work with Russia, but they want to define what, like, what working with the Russians means. Uh, working with the Russians to uh, protect civilians and make sure that Syria is stable. I think many people uh, would welcome that. Even. Uh, some of the uh, uh, backers of the Syrian opposition in the region would welcome uh, a Russian uh, constructive role I- in Syria as opposed to an Iranian role uh, in-, in the region and some people see even Turkey for example They see a difference between uh, how Iran uh, What Iran is doing in Syria and Iraq and what Russia Ideally, would want to do uh, in Syria and Iraq. They're they're different, uh, or in Syria at least, uh, uh, in the Russian case. And uh, and I think there's there's a chance if, if the next administration can separate this and, and and work to emphasize that they want to salvage what's left of Syria uh, without uh, the hegemonic hegemonic uh, kind of control by Iran. I think there's a big chance there. And uh, one of the one of the ideas we presented, I and Michael, is that we look in Syria as, uh, as a as a as a fractured country already. So uh, instead of looking Syria, looking at Syria in a holistic uh, way of saying, for example, we want to topple Bashar assad or not, or we want to create safe zones or not. I think these are general uh, ideas that don't don't uh, that ignore uh, what's happening on the ground. For example, uh, the way we look at it, just to give you like more details, if we look at Syria today, uh, the regime controls 40 percent of the country uh, territory, territorially speaking, not uh, population. And 60 percent of the country, what's left the the, the kind of the 60 percent of the country that is left uh, is really uh, are the areas that uh, the Americans already have sphere of influence. These are areas where the Americans fought ISIS and cleared ISIS uh, from these areas, or they are in the process of clearing ISIS uh, from these areas. So the question would be whether the next administration would say to the the Russians and the Iranians, okay, so we've done our job, we uh, cleared the areas from ISIS, and here we go, you can take it. I don't think the next administration will do that. I think the next administration will, uh, will, will say that we need to continue to control these areas in one way or, or another to make sure that ISIS doesn't come back. And based on that hope, I think there's a chance that at least 60 percent of Syria will be salvaged.
0: So cutting the country up into pieces and controlling I mean essentially creating a safe zone, you, adv- you think that's a good idea?
1: Uh, yes, but it, it's not, uh, I mean, area, these areas are already safe zones. So the Americans will uh, not have, uh, like, they won't have to do uh, more than what they are already doing. So remember, the areas where the Americans have fought ISIS, uh, the, the, you know, uh, these areas already uh, already have some American presence, whether, uh, you know, they have special forces in some areas, they even uh, installed uh, a base uh, in northern Syria. And what we're asking for is that to turn this presence, which seems to be ad hoc or temporary, into something more uh, strategic to secure these areas. And even, uh, it's not a partition plan, but it's basically uh, trying to use these safe havens or de facto safe havens uh, and, and turn them into something that works and then it would be coalesced into whatever Syrians uh, decide to do in the future. So it's not it's not a, an occupation uh, or kind of pro- proposal uh, for the Americans to occupy uh, Syria. It's not a proposal for the Americans to send troops. It's not a proposal for the Americans to even dedicate more resources. What they need to do is to work with Turkey and with regional countries and say, you know what, this 60% of Syria can turn into a, 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 a you know a good story. The alternative is Bashar Assad decides after he takes over. All of northwestern Syria, which is Aleppo and a neighboring uh, province called Idlib, um, uh, to say well, you know what we're going to go to Raqqa and we're going to go to Daraa and we go to eastern Syria where ISIS uh, uh, you know worked. That after the Americans clear ISIS uh, uh, clear that area from ISIS, and they say you know what we now control Syria. I don't I don't think that will um, will help Syria. That's that's only going to be. Uh, Bringing us back to uh, square one where ISIS starts to come back, where the Syrian rebels start to revolt, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, I think the best case scenario is for the Americans to say, What? To say, uh, you know what? This is uh, the area, and we can decide how uh, these areas will be run uh, in the future.
0: Hassan Hassan is co author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. You should uh, read his latest. He's got a piece off. He co authored with Michael Weiss on the com and uh, follow him on Twitter. Hassan, great to have you, sir. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, let's do a buck brief close. You are leaving a secure space. Cell phones may be turned on. Disavow all knowledge of this meeting. Remember to protect sources and methods. Maintain good OPSEC at all times. 888 900 Phones open. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. See, I thought it was interesting. We just had an author or somebody who writes for The Daily Beast. He's author of a a book, ISIS Inside the Army of Terror, but he co-writes with our friend Michael Weiss, The Daily Beast sometimes. Another piece from The Beast, uh, which is left-wing, but does some pretty good stuff uh, sometimes. They were talking about how 1984 became this huge sensation and how it sold well and then it sold really well and all that, but more interesting to me is in their piece there's a YouGov there or a, yeah ugov poll about the 10 most important 10 most valuable books to humanity was the question number 1 was the bible which is unsurprising uh number 2 was the origin of species number 3 a brief history of time number 4 relativity relativity the special and general theory 5 1984 by or- orwell 6 uh, Principia, uh, Principia Mathematica, uh, seven to kill a mockingbird, eight the Koran, nine the Wealth of Nations, and ten the double helix. Other than the Bible, the Koran, 1984, and To Kill a Mockingbird, I would wager that less than one percent of Americans have read more than one of those one of those books. The Origin of Species, A Brief History of Time, Relativity, Relativity the Special and General Theory. Uh, Principia Mathematica uh, the Wealth of Nations everybody owns the Wealth of nations and look I'm not gonna lie to you I bought it when I was like in college and still have it on my shelf. Nobody's read the Wealth of Nations. I mean they tell you they have but I mean they read like the first 20 pages and they were like Meh, I'm gonna read some I'm gonna watch some Netflix The Bug Sexton show on the Blaze Radio network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. In another team, I think if I could sort of just come back as something other than uh, a movie star or a rock star, but you'd really want to be a rock star that hits your peak in like the eight, like late eighties, early nineties. I feel like that was the greatest time to be a a rock star. Um, so you know, when CDs really were at their peak, and you know your your MTV and all that stuff going on. Now it's a little different. Uh, music is more sort of disag- – the music industry is more disaggregated. A- anyway, um, <laughs> forget about that for a second. I also think it would be fun to come back as a professor of uh, the classics. Um, that would be – but I'd want to be a professor of classics who consults on historical projects. One of, my th- one of the things that's really annoyed me uh, for a long time about movies that are based on a historical event is it's one thing when they, for dramatic effect, you know, yeah, they got to throw in probably some beautiful ladies, and you know, that didn't really, you know, I, I like I can handle in Braveheart the French print, I mean the princess from France who, you know, that uh, didn't happen, but okay, you know what I mean? I can sort of go with that. Um, but when they can tell the truth of the story and they choose not to, and the actual story is more interesting than what they come up with, I get very annoyed. Um, so I. Recently, you know, I watched. Uh, I finished watching Spartacus, and these are things that I watch. And as I said, my brothers, uh, particularly my older brother, makes fun of me and says that if if there's what is it, uh, wine, uh, wine wenches, swords, and beards, I'm in. That's what, he, and he's right. Anything that has that, uh, movie, TV show, wine wenches, dudes with swords, and 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 lots of beards, uh, I'm probably gonna be a fan of the show, um, and. There is, uh, for me at least, um, uh, you know, looking at this, I have to say, I I thought that, you know, Spartacus, there was a little too much blood. There's a little too much of of that stuff. But uh, some of the overall storyline actually tracked with the slave revolt against the Roman Empire. And they actually used, you know, the Marcus Crassus puts it down and uh, the names of the leaders of the revolt, you know, Gatticus and, um, uh, there's a whole, uh, now of course I'm forgetting. So the, uh, Gatticus and Crixus and, uh, and others are actually the names of some of the slave revolt leaders. And they, so there is some, and, uh, Glaba, who was the, uh, uh, initial consul who was assigned to take them down. So while the show is like the actual fighting is ridiculous and, you know, just as a, as a bit of, Advice to those of you who may find themselves in an actual uh, fight with a, a Roman uh, Roman testudo formation or something, y- you don't really want to do the running, jumping, two leg drop kick when you're when you have armor and a sword in your hand, um, because people are going to stab you when you're on the ground and you're going to die. A lot of running drop kicks in this, like it's a WWF. I just am like, where did they get this? I that's one of the worst. Like, first of all, if you can't get out of the way of a two-legged dropkick, you got problems. Uh, it's I mean, what move is easier to see coming than somebody running and launching himself in the air and then trying to mule kick? Anyway, it's crazy. But the overall storyline kind of tracks. I also watched, and I haven't really done a, a deep dive myself into it. I'm probably going to go into the Strand bookstore over the weekend and pick up something on uh, uh, the Medici family. Um, but there's Medici Masters of Florence, a Netflix series that has the guy who plays the King of the North, the initial King of the North, I forget his name. Um, he's one of the Starks, uh, the initial King of the North, and, and he gets killed at the Red Wedding. He plays uh, Cosimo de' Medici, and it's good. It's a little slow, I think, to get going as a series, but it's pretty good. But I want to see how much of the history they stay true to because I feel like more and more now people are realizing that you know if you're going to watch a historic piece at least the overall major events should be historically accurate, right? There's no reason not to. Yeah, you can change, you make up the dialogue and the sort of internal personal squabbles, and there's going to be little action sequences here and there that didn't really happen. Fine. But overall, you know, the major battles and things like that, you'd like them to sort of track with reality. And anyway, I've always thought it'd be fun to be a professor of the classics who got to consult on a movie like Troy or. Or, or you know maybe if I was uh, specializing in Renaissance Europe to consult on this series, uh, but the Medici is very well. I will say the production value is very good. I can recommend it from that. Uh, from that end, uh, I can also tell you um, that there's a lot of there's a lot of nakedness. There's a lot of there's a lot of boobies. So for those of you that you know, not for this is not for the under eighteen crowd and. Don't watch this woman. Don't try to over the holiday. Don't be like, oh, you know, come here, kids. Like, let's throw on the Medici show. Like, no, 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 no. It's there's too much, too much going on there. Um, but another good history. And, and I like these things because I, I feel like you can always also in your head cross reference it with what you think the period would have looked like. And, you know, and, and, I, and I like to check on the stuff. Anyway, it's a it's a personal thing that, you know, I, I do in my spare time because I'm obviously really exciting and, and love to party. But I was thinking about all this also because I read this piece. This is sort of a – that was a long diversion. And it's a piece put out by a woman. I don't know her, so this is not a personal slam. I don't, I don't do unnecessary personal slams. I really try not to do personal slams, period. I always love it when I go to CNN and I get personally slammed when we're talking about a policy issue. And I'm like, can we not why, – why, why am I being like attacked all of a sudden? Like, you're not being attacked. We're just saying you're terrible. It's like, wait, I, I think saying I'm terrible is an attack. or, or I think saying I'm, I'm uh, anti-Muslim and a racist is an attack. I think. You know, I I don't have a Ph.D., but uh, I do know some stuff being a Ph.D. So this woman, Donna Zuckerberg, writing for a publication that I'd never heard Edelon. I'd never heard of it before. I'm not sure it's big, but it got a little bit of attention from some of the conservative intelligentsia. The headline of it was under a bad emperor. uh, Oh, sorry. How to be a good classicist under a bad emperor. And, you know, this woman has a Ph.D. from Princeton. She teaches at Stanford University. So, I mean, we're talking very fancy places. It doesn't really get much fancier than Princeton Stanford. I mean, there's Harvard and there's Yale. But, you know, Princeton and Stanford are right up there. Um, I knew there was a problem with this, though, because not only when you sort of get into a a little bit of her piece, um, you can see that she's sort of a far left um, ideologue and has adopted a lot of this sort of progressive orthodoxy as uh, unalterable truth. She also has a book coming out. Not, and I shouldn't even say it because like, I feel like I'm giving her free advertising on the show, but this will tell you a lot. Not All Dead White Men is the title of it. A Study of the Reception of Classics uh, is due to be re- released by Harvard University Press uh, coming up next fall. Not All Dead White Men, A Study of the Classics. yeah. I'm going to say that like most of the people in ancient Greece that had a really big impact on Greek philosophy and and literature and art I'm going to say most of them were white men. I'm going to put that out there, you know. That that's it's likely that in ancient Greece that was true. Just saying. Um, but she has a different point of view. But that's not even really what I wanted to get into here as you can see I'm bouncing around with my thoughts on this one. Uh she talks about well, let me read you a bit, of, a, a bit of this piece. A specter is haunting the Internet, the specter of the alt-right. Ah, somebody who's a Ph.D. in the classics talking about the alt-right. This should be interesting. The forces of white supremacy and toxic masculinity, fueled by a sense of entitlement dwarfed only by their inflated estimation of their own intelligence, have entered into an unholy alliance to remove feminism, Political correctness and multi- multiculturalism from America. Now, stop there for a second. See, this is what I was trying to say before, and I know I'm on. With some of you, some of you are a little like, "What?" Huh? And I, with a lot of folks, you're on sort of dangerous ground. The moment you say, "Well, hold on a second. is this guy Spencer and these racist buffoons? Are they the alt-right, or is there something else that's a part of the alt-right? Or because the alt-right used to refer to something else, it's now been co-opted, it seems, by sort of neo-Nazi white nationalists. But that's not how it was, even by the New York Times. Referred to a while ago, and uh, removing feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism from America—like I, I want that on my resume. So I don't want that to be something that only the alt right is doing, or that the alt right has some sort of a claim to beyond me. Like, I just just put this out there. Okay, but back to her piece. So she writes this like these, these these hateful words, and it's so terrible that when I want to get rid of feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism. I, I think those things should be eradicated immediately. All right. On November eighth, twenty sixteen, after enduring years of mockery, months of being told that they are the they are the arc of the moral universe uh, would never let it win, the alt right scored its first significant political victory: the election of Donald Trump to the highest office, of the most powerful country in the world. Uh, last week, this is this woman writing, this uh, PhD from uh, from Princeton, who teaches. Remember, she teaches the classics: ancient Greece, ancient Rome, yada yada. Um, so. She, she writes here, last week I gave two lectures about my research on classics and the manosphere. Now, first of all, anyone who uses the manosphere in any, with any level of seriousness is worthy of mockery, period. Right? Anyone who talks about the manosphere, we need to make fun of, full stop, just the way it is, um, and which is great. So she uses the term manosphere. And then she sort of goes on to talk about how we need to fight back against the manosphering of the classics. And she's worried that the alt-right, when it talks about Western civilization, is hijacking the real sort of study of Western civilization. And she wants to push back against this. But I wanted to also give you some of it because I'm I'm sure this is representative now because all these academics, they all parrot each other and they all want to stay within certain guidelines that they're sort of creating as they go, but it's, you know, they are in a constant evolution of the progressive echo chamber, right? It's just, they're all trying to stay within it, and yeah, it's sort of shifting over time, but they're trying to shift together. You know, think of it like all the kids chasing one soccer ball around, right? They're all clumping together. That's how in different uh, humanities, in different areas of the humanities, with, with academics who, this is what they do, they teach at these universities, and They have these wonderful jobs where you have very little pressure and very little – once you get tenure, before then it's like misery and you're underpaid and it's terrible. But once you get tenure, you're in great shape Um, and you're generally speaking – especially at these elite institutions, really overpaid – But she says, uh, this is what to do about the manosphering of the classics that will occur under a Trump administration, right? So we're we're pulling a bunch of threads together here. We're pulling Trump's victory together with the manosphering of the classics and the alt-right. And, you know, this is all a big mishmash, but it's kind of fun to, to get into it. She writes, when you hear someone, be they a student, a colleague or an amateur, say they are interested in classics because of the Greek miracle or because classics is, quote, the foundation of Western civilization and culture, Challenge that viewpoint respectfully but forcefully. Engage them on their assumed definitions of, quote, foundation, quote, Western, quote, civilization, and quote, culture. Point out that such ideas are a slippery slope to white supremacy. Seek better reasons for studying classics. Uh, So this is a Ph.D. from Princeton who teaches at Stanford writing publicly about how. Somebody who says they want to study the classics, which I did as a, you know, as a sort of a, a lay person over the course of my studies. I am not an expert in the classics by any means, nor would I ever pretend to be. But it was sort of a, a foundation or at least a backdrop to much of my study and much of what I've been interested in since. But if you're interested in that because the classics are quote the foundation of Western civilization and culture, you should be challenged on literally every word in that sentence. You should be challenged on what is culture, on what is civilization, on what is Western. This is her advice to people, um, because not only is that super annoying, but also to add on top of that, she believes that to think in those terms is a, quote, slippery slope to white supremacy. This is madness. This is uh, this is madness. And as Leonidas says. This is Sparta. We'll be right back.
1: Sexton. Go to The Blaze Radio Network.
0: listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, team, just returning to this uh, Donna Zuckerberg piece here. Uh, she also writes, these are these are her ideas for people going forward to deal with the alt-rights co- uh, co-option of the classics because Western civilization and the Western miracle somehow is now akin to white nationalism. It's just insane. I don't even know what that—I mean, she's just gone off the deep end here. But she writes, in your scholarship, focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men. Uh, and, of course, read and cite the work of scholars who write about race, gender, and class in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, there was slavery in ancient Greece. It wasn't based on race. It was just slavery, which has existed for thousands of years in the world and uh, is talked about in America only in the context of American slavery. Forget and We forget about Islamic slavery and we forget about slavery in the ancient world. And Anyway, um, but I just think this is fascinating. It's a focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men. Okay, I mean, we're talking about the ancient world. You know what? Where are we talking about here? Uh, We're not talking about. We're talking about Greece and Rome. I don't know. Not a lot of, not white men come to mind in terms of what I said. Leadership, military. Maybe it's just these were oppressive societies in their own ways. Anyway. Moving right along I just think that's fascinating That this is now That even the classics Have been politicized To this extent That you have a PhD Talking about the manosphere And, the, and how the alt-right Is trying to take over The study of western civilization Nothing is, nothing is sacred Nothing is safe anymore My friends uh, hat tip to Mike Another list of, that he sent me Of the most important books To all of humanity The Bible The Koran The Communist Manifesto The Republic Wealth of Nations Origin of Species Relativity Albert Einstein And A Brief History of Time Again, with the exception of the first two on that list, um, and very few people have read both, I think, of those two. But how many people have actually read The Communist Manifesto, Plato's Republic, Adam Smith's Wealth, Na- Wealth of Nations, Darwin's Origin of Species, Einstein's Relativity? I know they've had a huge impact, but it's interesting to me that, I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. For a minute. How many of us have actually read it? I'm not going to lie. I haven't read a bunch of them. I definitely read The Republic, The Communist Manifesto. Um, haven't read uh, Relativity and haven't read um, A Brief History of Time. Haven't even read Adam Smith. Shields tie.
1: The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.